0: If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to take a break from Acts today and look again at the topic of anxiety or worry um, just to try to think it through a little more and reinforce some things we've already talked about that we might glorify God by trusting him at all times and all seasons. We'll look at verses 13 through 34. Of Luke chapter 12 in this section of Luke it actually begins talking about the fact that Jesus was ministering to a large crowd of people if you notice in verse 1 it says under these circumstances which refers back to the fact that uh, they were plotting to catch Jesus in something he might say and so The heat was turning up on the Lord Jesus from the religious leaders. And it says under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began uh, saying to his disciples and they began talking about the issue of hypocrisy and uh, persecution. And he mentions in verse six and seven that we are. Um, more valuable than many sparrows, that God uh, indeed has all the hairs on our head numbered and he does not even forget the little sparrows. And so if he doesn't forget the sparrows and he knows the hairs on our heads, then we need not be afraid. And then in verses 11 and 12, he talks about the fact that in persecution, you might have to appear before some authorities and actually be worried about what, you're to say or how you're to speak and he says don't worry god will give you what you need in that time and so you have this context of jesus talking to the crowd and talking to the disciples about the issues of persecution and fear and worry and then we have this section where uh, someone asks a question and this question gives the lord jesus an opportunity uh, to talk even more specifically about the issue of worry and how to think about it and how to fight it in our lives. And so let me read for us verses 13 through 34. And if, you'll notice that uh, the first few verses and the last few verses of this passage uh, actually bookend uh, the passage together very nicely. But in first verse 13, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, For this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food. And the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life span. If then you cannot do even, even a very little thing. Why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also this is the word of god now obviously you probably recognize a lot of what is said here as being very similar to what the lord jesus said in matthew 6 on in the sermon on the mount and yet the context is different so it appears that this was a different occasion when jesus taught some of the same things and it's interesting how the Lord Jesus relates the issue of worry in Matthew 6 to certain things and how he relates it to other things in Luke chapter 12. So uh, we're actually building on what we've already talked about in Matthew 6 by actually looking more closely at how the Lord Jesus addresses it in Luke chapter 12. Let me just begin by um, highlighting the fact that the Bible in various ways talks about the fact that God created us to be holy and happy through trust and love. The Bible tells us that God is holy. The Bible also tells us that God is happy. And we know that the Bible calls us to be holy like God is holy. We know that it's God's desire that we be happy like he is because Jesus said, I've told you all these things so that my joy may be in you. So if you look closely at what the Bible says, it reveals a God who is holy and a God who is joyful, is truly happy, and he created us in his image to actually be holy like he is holy and happy like he is happy, but you can't separate those two things. You can't be truly happy and ignore holiness, and if your pursuit of holiness doesn't result in happiness in God, then your pursuit of holiness is off somehow they both go together and god calls us to do that to pursue both of those things holiness and happiness together through trusting him and loving like he's called us to love and that brings us to the issue of worry because worry is is unholiness it's not a holy thing to worry it's very clear that the lord in this passage twice says do not worry that's a command and so to pursue holiness is to fight against worry, to fight against anxiety. And so part of the holiness that is important and necessary for our happiness in God, our joy in God, is the issue of having to deal with worry. We've said this in various ways already, but worry can be understood as being consumed with trying to control the future for fear of not getting what I want when God promises what I need to be holy and happy in him and so being worried is not being concerned we all should be concerned we should be concerned about our own lives our own holiness Uh, we should be concerned about other people's lives and their holiness and their provision and so it's not concern we're not talking about just everyday concern for Uh, God to do things in people's lives. That's what we pray. We pray out of concern. That's what motivates our prayers, is godly concern for ourselves and for others. So it's not concern, but it is the desire to control. It's actually, actually taking on the role of God, wanting to control the future, wanting to control the future for ourselves and for other people as well. And that Desire to control is based on the fear of not getting what I want, that maybe God isn't going to do what I want him to do, as opposed to being submitted to what God wants. And so it exposes my wanter, where is my wanter in all of this, is, is it just that I want what I want, or do I really want what God wants, so I really want his will to be done, And all of it is an issue of faith because God promises what I need, but he promises what I need with a qualification. He promises what I need in light of his work in me to make me holy and to make me truly happy in him. And so that may mean that I experience some need in different ways and at different times, but he promises to meet my needs in the ultimate pursuit of what he created me for to be holy like he is and to be happy like he is in him and so we'll talk more about that as we go through um, this this morning but the the way i want to want us to think about this passage in light of worry is to think about it in terms of what we want because the reality is all of us want to see certain things happen we want to see certain things happen in our lives We want to see certain things happen in the lives of our children, grandchildren, co-workers, whoever it might be. And the question is, are those just concerns or have they become something that consumes us that we want to control? Because we're afraid that we might not get what we want for ourselves and for other people. And the reality is that actually undermines our love It undermines our trust in God. It undermines our joy. And so it truly is an important thing for us to think through and pray through and fight in our lives. So the things that I want to talk about this morning in light of this passage are basically an answer to the question, what kinds of sinful wants that feed worry do we need to recognize and avoid and fight against? So I'm talking about... Sinful wants. All of our wants aren't sinful. If there are ways in which we want things, in a sense, demand things that are sinful and actually feed our worry, feed our anxiety. And the first thing is uh, out of verses thirteen through fifteen. Um, in verses thirteen through fifteen, we see that someone in the crowd. Now, this is a huge crowd, where they're stepping on each other, and someone in the crowd. Uh, I don't know if they raised their hand and said, teacher, teacher, but they got Jesus' attention and he asked him to, or basically said, uh, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, it's possible that he wanted Jesus to go to his house and tell his brother, or that brother might have been standing right beside him. That brother was trying to pull his hand down and say, don't, don't raise your hand. He said, tell my brother... To divide the inheritance with me. He's right here. Tell him. And Jesus says, Man, who made me the arbitrator between you and your brother? In one sense, Jesus is highlighting the fact that there is a proper process to go through. Jesus didn't know any on a human level as a man, he didn't know all the details of what was going on between him and this guy's brother. And so to just make an arbitrary judgment without the details would would not have been a just thing for Jesus to do. And there hadn't been any agreement between this man and his brother that Jesus would be the arbitrator. So there are all kinds of reasons why Jesus said, this this isn't appropriate for me to do. So he rejects the request. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then... So as, as a man, as a human, he says, I'm not going to do this. But as God, he reveals what's really going on in that situation. And he doesn't simply talk to the man who asked the question. He begins talking to them, the crowd. He talks to everybody and says, beware and be on guard against all kinds of greed. Now, that guy hopefully heard Jesus talking to him as he was talking to everyone. Because he was basically saying, you know what's going on here between these two brothers? It's an issue of greed. That's what's taking place here. And um, even though Jesus doesn't come right out and say this, as far as we know from what was recorded, he's basically implying that this man thinks what he really needs to be happy is to have more of the inheritance. Now, that could have been that his older brother, probably his older brother, Uh, wasn't giving him any inheritance or it could be that because the older brother deserved a double portion he just wanted it to be even either way he wanted more than what he was getting and as a result jesus says essentially this man thinks he will be happier if he gets more and jesus says his problem isn't how much he's getting or not getting his problem is his greed that's his real issue Uh, and Jesus is essentially saying, I can help you with that. I'm not going to be the arbitrator of this inheritance thing, because that's really not the issue here that's going to make the difference in your true happiness, but I can help you with what really will make you happy, and that's the issue of greed. And so we see this discussion going on, and it exposes the fact that there was this desire for wanting more than what was given in this situation. And we need to realize that that could have been any one of us raising our hand and asking God to tell someone to give us more than what we're getting. Uh, tell that person to love me better. Tell that person to spend more time with me. Tell that person to do this or that or whatever because I'm not getting what I need. So tell this person to do what they need to do for me. Now, obviously, there's a place for praying for our relationships. But there's an issue of how we pray for our relationships. That's the point. And we should pray that they would grow and pray that where there's a lack on our part, on on others' parts, that that we grow. But how we think about that and how we pray about that is very important. It's interesting in the Old Testament, you've got an account of Korah's rebellion. And Korah and some others... um, are basically rebelling against Aaron and against Moses. And Moses uh, challenges them and rebukes them. And it says in Numbers 16, Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you That the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you. And are you seeking for the priesthood also? So what is Moses saying to Korah? God has blessed you richly with what you have. He set aside the tribe of Levi to minister in the tabernacle, to to be near him. And yet you're not satisfied with that. You want to be in the priesthood like Aaron and his brothers. It's not enough for you what God has given you. It was a rebuke. You see the same kind of thing in David and Bathsheba. And what happened there when uh, Nathan comes to David after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Her husband, Nathan, comes and tells the story about the lamb and and says, You're the man. And God, through Nathan the prophet, speaks to David and says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives. And he goes on from there and says, If that had been too little... I would have added to you many more things than these. But you've despised the word of the Lord and you have taken um, Uriah's wife to be yours. So what is Nathan saying? God is saying through Nathan, I gave you all of this and it still wasn't enough. You had to have someone else's wife. And so it's a picture of greed, not being content with what God has given or what God promises us for the future. And so we have to really think about the reality of what God has promised us. Two of my favorite verses, I know Jan mentions uh, this many times in various contexts, but like Psalm 3410 says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. They who seek the Lord means those who have a real relationship with God. The Bible says... When we're estranged from God, when we're not believers, we don't seek God. But when we are true believers, we are seekers of God, and God promises we will not be in want of any good thing. Psalm eighty four eleven says something similar. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But we can be very anxious that God isn't going to give us what we want and that he might withhold some good thing from us. Um, our prayer is going to be like the little boy I've talked about before who's praying with his mom. There's various versions of the story, praying with his mom or his dad and saying, Lord, um, please be with me as I sleep and bless mommy and bless daddy. And all of a sudden, he raises his voice and says, And may you make sure that I get a bicycle for Christmas. And so the mom says, son, uh, God's not deaf. You don't have to yell. And he says, yeah, but grandma is. And I got to make sure she hears what I'm saying. (laughs) And so the whole idea is that prayer can be another way of just trying to control my situation. So how I pray is important. Am I praying, God, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to give me this? And in a sense, our hearts are shouting, I have to have this, even as I pray. Or am I saying, God, this is what I want, this is what I think would be good, but your will be done. Is it my will be done, or is it your will be done? And so greed is something that says, I have to have more I have to have more than what God has given me and, and even more than what God promises to give me. I have to make sure I get what I want. And so some of our anxiety is that kind of anxiety. It's driven by that kind of thinking that, that maybe God won't give me all the good things that I need. That Maybe I'm going to get the short end of the stick somehow. Well, secondly, in the next section, uh, verses 16 through 21, what the Lord does after he talks about being careful of greed, wanting more and more and more and more, and that's the idea of greed, wanting more and more and more. We can't ever get enough, so to speak. Certainly not enough to make us feel totally happy and secure. And so he tells this story about the rich fool and the stockpiling that this uh, man does. And so... What's going on here is he tells this parable. A parable is a kind of story that, that is meant to, um, something we're supposed to take and put it beside our lives and just examine my life in light of that story. That's what a parable is meant to do. It's, it's meant to allow us to evaluate our own lives in light of the story that's being told and the point of the story. So he tells a story, this parable, the rich man who's very productive, there's nothing wrong with being productive. Um, he, he asks the question, what am I going to do? Because uh, I don't have barns big enough to hold my great uh, harvest. And then he says, well, I'll build, build larger barns. Nothing wrong with building large barns. Um, he goes on, he says, um, you know, I've got a lot for many years to come. Uh, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with wanting to enjoy the fruit of your labor. So there are things in this story that aren't inherently wrong. But what is wrong about the man's idea? Well, for one thing, he, he in this little story, either the word I or the word my is used over and over and over again. So it's all about my stuff and what i'm going to do there's no consideration of god there's no consideration of others it's all very self-centered and so obviously uh, god calls this man a fool in the old testament a fool meant not someone who wasn't very smart Uh, the idea of a fool is someone who does not live his life in light of God and his will and his accountability to God. He just lives his life in whatever way he wants to, whatever way he thinks is best. He's not thinking about God and God's will for his life and the fact that he will answer to God. And God says that is foolishness to live that way. And that's what we have going on here is a man who's totally consumed with his own pleasure and thinking about how we can use what he has just to please himself, not to honor God, not to help anyone else. And the Lord Jesus ends that by saying, it's foolish to be rich in this world, have material things, have any kind of riches in this world, and to be poor toward God, not to be rich toward God, which you could probably best understand that as being rich with God. If you have God, you are rich because God owns everything, everything. So if you have God, you have everything and you're truly rich, even if you may not appear that way. But the idea of um, stockpiling or just putting up everything that we make so that we can somehow um, have all of our needs met and be able to do whatever we want to do in the future is a very common attitude in our society. And it's not a new attitude. It's, it's been all, uh, an attitude for uh, thousands of years. The idea of, you know, I want to somehow make sure I'm provided for adequately uh, for the future in terms of what I think is adequate, in terms of what I want to do, in terms of not having any need. And there are people that actually will argue that you need to save so much money and do so uh, many different things to make sure that you can account for every possible need in the future. And the Bible says that's a fool's errand to try and do that because you can't ever possibly anticipate every need and provide for every need. And that kind of attitude actually robs God of his place of providing and hinders you from actually giving to other people because all you can think about is, well, I might need that money. I might need that money, so I can't give it up because I might not be able to do what I want to do when I'm retired. I might not be able to do what I want to do because I won't have enough money or whatever. Now, that's not to say there's, there's something inherently wrong with saving and planning for the future. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this, this worry, trying to control the future. I want to make sure I don't have any needs. And so we have to be careful of an anxiety that comes out of actually trying to somehow create a situation where I don't have any needs. Uh, I don't really need God and I don't need anybody else. Um, this is reflected, I think, in Proverbs 18 when it says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. So a rich man's wealth is like a strong city that can protect you from enemies and, and that sort of thing. And like a high wall, uh, something that will um, provide you security. The idea is we can believe the lie, the more I have, the more secure I am. The more I have, the more secure I am. When that's just only something in our own imagination. Because the reality is a fire can wipe out everything. The stock market can drop and wipe out all of your retirement. There are things that can happen that you don't have any control over that can wipe out everything that you've stockpiled, and you might be like the rich fool that you die and you don't even get the opportunity to, to spend all those things. And so the issue is the issue of security, not wanting to have any needs. It's kind of like, um, I think you can also see this in the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they go through this discussion and eventually Jesus says, sell everything and come and follow me. And the rich man walks away unwilling to do that. Why? Because he was looking to what he owned for his help and his happiness. If he really believed that Jesus was the source of his help and happiness, he'd be willing to let it all go. He'd be willing to do whatever Jesus said to do if he really believed Jesus was that source of his security and his provision. But because he didn't believe that, he's going to walk away from Jesus and walk back to his bank account. Because that's where his hope really is. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews 13 which says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What is the love of money? I love those things from which I receive help and happiness. I love money if I think that's the source of my help for whatever I need and my happiness, whatever I desire. And the writer of Hebrews says, Run from the love of money. Flee from it. Be content with what you have because... The most important thing is the truth that God promises never to leave you nor forsake you. God is your resource. God is your treasure. He's your help and your happiness. If you have God, it doesn't matter what else you have. That's the point, that our hearts tend to think, no, my security and my happiness is based on my bank account or it's based on how much I have in savings or or whatever it might be. And the Bible keeps telling us, no, no. It's actually based on who or what your God is. And if your God is the true God, you're in good shape. Um, There's a poem about uh, the chair and the man who never wanted to sit. It says, there was once a man who had a wonderful chair. It was a chair that was designed to eliminate all care. But this man was such that never wanted to sit. So the chair and the man fell apart And that was it. We weren't designed to run and run and run. We were designed to rest and rest and rest. The picture of the man who wouldn't sit is the man who would not rest in what God has promised. Our anxiety is driven, literally, you could say that we're driven by anxiety, and our anxiety drives us to not rest in the fact that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will take care of you. Which brings us to the, the largest part of this passage that's very familiar to what we find in Matthew 6. And it's about the birds and the flowers, and it's about the danger of being too responsible. And so there's a lot in here that I don't have time to uh, touch on. But you notice at the beginning, he says in verse 22, for this reason, in Matthew 6, he talks about the fact that you cannot worship God and mammon. And he says, for this reason, do not worry. In this context, he's talking about the issue of greed and the issue of trying to meet all your needs and, and do it on your own. And he says, that's a fool's errand. And in light of the issue of greed and the fool's errand, for this reason, do not worry about your life. So he's highlighting the fact that in Matthew 6, in light of the issue of idolatry, what you're worshiping, don't worry. This is another kind of argument that's close to the same kind of argument where he's basically saying in light of what your treasure is, do not worry. Remember the whole discussion started with, uh, make my brother share the treasure with me, the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, in light of this, do not worry, because life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Life is more than what you possess. Life is not simply sustained by food. It's not simply sustained by clothing. It's not sustained by big barns filled with grain. God is the one who sustains our lives. God is the one who keeps us going. And if we had no food and no clothing, he could still keep us going. Because ultimately, he's the one who does it. That's why we pray for people's healing. Can doctors do things? Yes. But that's not what heals people. That's not what keeps people alive. What keeps people alive is God. God is who? He is the one who keeps people alive. He uses doctors. And he uses food and clothing to meet our needs, but that's not really what it's all about. And so what the Lord does, and we highlighted this before, he says, look around you at the world God has created and learn something. He says, consider. I mean, think hard, about what God has created. And he's created birds. And he says, you know, birds can't do what that rich fool did. They couldn't plant and harvest and build barns. But God feeds them. Now, birds do do things. Um, they don't just sit in their nest and wait for worms to pop in their mouth. They, they go looking for food. So they do things but the Bible still says it's God who's feeding them. And then he says, consider the lilies. Think hard about the flowers and realize that the flowers can't even do what the birds do. They can't move around and, and go find water or, or get out in the sun if they're in the shade or whatever they need. They're, they're just kind of stuck right where they are. And so it's a picture of the picture of being even more limited than the birds are. And some people are even more limited than normal people are. That doesn't mean God can't provide for them. God is more than able to provide for us whatever our situation is, no matter how limited we are. We may be more limited than most people are because of physical issues, because of mental issues, whatever it might be, God is still more than able to meet our needs. And so the Lord Jesus says... God has given us flowers and birds to teach us something. Probably many things, but this this at at least is what he's given us birds and flowers to do. So when you look at a flower, remember that God can take care of the flowers so he can take care of you. When you see a bird, remember that God takes care of the birds, he can take care of you. How much more will he take care of you? Because the reality is, you and I, are not on the same level as birds and plants. Now, there are a lot of people today that want to say we're no different. It's just as important to save a plant or a bird as it is to save a human. And that's a lie. Humans are much more important than plants and, and birds. Should we respect and try to take care of plants and birds? Yes, but not at the expense of humans. That's climate, environmental, environmental, heresy, sin. It's wrong. I mean, it's very clear that God wants us to realize that he is much more concerned about humans than he is plants and birds, but he still is concerned about them. He cares for the birds. There's not a sparrow that he forgets about. And yet we are much more important, certainly as his creatures, as those made in his image, and even more so in light of the fact that we are the redeemed, those of us who've been redeemed by the Lamb. Well, he mentions the fact that we find ourselves still worrying in light of the truth. And he says, you men of little faith. I just want to highlight the fact that a little faith is better than no faith. So it's better to have a little faith than none at all. But much faith is better than little faith. And so the Lord Jesus is saying that as true believers, those truly saved, um, you need to try to add to your faith. You need to grow that faith because God is glorified through much faith, not through little faith, as we trust him for what we need. Um, And he says, remember your father already knows what you need. He talks about the fact that don't seek Things like the nation seek things. What, what does that mean? When he says, don't seek what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, does that mean I don't go into the kitchen and get something to eat, or I, I don't go to work and try to buy what I need? No, it means don't set your heart on that. Don't set your heart on, oh, I just got to get these things. No, he says, set your heart on doing the will of God. Set your heart on the kingdom of God. And he says, because your father knows you already need all these things. What does that mean? Does it mean just intellectually God knows? No, it means God's already at work to provide for you. God's already at work to answer your prayer before you ask him. In fact, he started right from the very beginning. Everything that's happening in the world somehow is feeding into his answering your prayers. Even before you ask him. Your father knows what you need, and he will give what you need. Well, there's the question, what about Christians who die of starvation? I mean, Paul even says, at times um, we're hungry and um, poorly clothed. So what do we do with those verses? Those verses are in the Bible too. We have to understand those verses, I believe, as many people have argued that God's promises are, in a sense, uh, a hierarchy of sorts, you might call it, that his greatest promise is, and this is the way John puts it in 1 John, he's promised us eternal life. Now, what is eternal life? Being perfectly holy and perfectly happy. Therefore, there may be times when I have needs... But that is God fulfilling his purpose and his promise to make me holy and make me happy and to bring glory to his name and to do things in the lives of other people. It brings God glory when someone can be in need and still trust God. It brings God glory when a Christian can die from starvation rather than deny Christ. It brings God glory. And there's no greater answer to prayer than God taking you home. Because that's that's the answer to, God make me holy and God make me happy. Because you're perfectly holy, and perfectly happy there. And so God never fails to keep his promises, but there are some promises that have to be in submission to his greatest promise, to glorify his name and to satisfy us in him. He will always fulfill his promises in light of that. And so one thing that I think is helpful in thinking about our own wants and how our wants feed our worry is realizing that we could, in a sense, not want to be a bird, not want to be a flower. I don't want to live day to day. I don't want to live paycheck to paycheck. I don't want to not be able to work and to be... Paralyzed. I don't want those things. So my I I may not want to be in need. I may want to be able to meet my own needs. I mean I think the story of God giving manna to the children of Israel touches on this in that God said to them, I'm gonna, you know, give you quail to eat, I'm gonna give you manna every day, and I want you to go out and gather, you know, a pint of it each person. And some people gathered a whole pint and some gathered gathered more than a pint. Some gathered less than a pint, I think. And then God said, don't keep it overnight. And some people kept it overnight. And you think about that dynamic. What's going on there? God said, gather this much. And some people didn't do that. God says, don't keep it overnight. Some people still kept it overnight. Why? Because there's still a reliance on themselves. One way or the other, they're relying on their own wisdom. They're relying on their own efforts to meet their needs. And God is continually at work in our lives to remind us that we cannot meet our own needs. It's just an illusion if we think we're meeting our needs. Now, the Bible does say we're to to work so that we're not in any need. We're to provide for our own family So what is that saying? It's telling us we have a responsibility to do certain things. Just like the bird isn't just to sit in the nest and wait for a, a worm to plop in his mouth. But the Bible says God feeds the birds that look for their meal. Which means, yes, we're to be responsible and not depend on other people to meet our needs. But at the end of the day, I don't say, thank you, me, for all you did to provide for me. No, we say, thank you, God. For providing. That's why we thank God for our meals. We don't say thank you to us for doing that. And so it's just an understanding of what is really happening in those situations. And ultimately, probably the greatest encouragement that the Bible gives for us to believe that we can trust God in any season, in any situation to meet our needs is God's name, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh means God, my provider. But what is the context of God revealing that name? It's when God told Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him. And so he takes him to this mountain and he raises the knife and he gets this close to killing Isaac. And the angel says, don't do it. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. And in the story... Um, At one point, Isaac says, you know, where's the sacrifice, dad? And Abraham says, well, God will provide for himself the sacrifice. And then when God stops him from killing Isaac, uh, we find that uh, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. So when I think of whether or not God will provide for me, I need to think, first of all, what he did for me in Jesus. That if he provided a Savior for me through and in his own Son, then I can expect him to provide for me just what I need for my help and my happiness or my holiness and my happiness. I can trust him to be faithful to do that because if he will do the greater thing, certainly he will do the lesser thing. That's why Paul can say. In Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, what does he mean? All things that we need in this life to glorify him and to move us toward holiness and happiness in him. We can trust him because of Jesus. I look at the cross I see Jesus and I can know that every other need God will take care of appropriately, whatever that means, uh, for my good and the good of others and for the glory of his name. And that's why in Isaiah 41:10 it says, God says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says, surely, surely, surely. If I'm your God, I take that role very seriously. I would not be your God if I wasn't there for you. I take my role very seriously. Would you take my role very seriously? By not giving in to fear, by not giving in to uh, worry. I mentioned in verses 6 and 7 of um, Luke 12, it says, Are not five sparrows sowed for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. We've all probably heard the song, His Eyes on the Sparrow, and it comes from these verses. And so it says, the song does, Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. God is my constant friend. It goes on to say, Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eyes is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. When I focus on God's goodness and believe that I can trust him, even with my limited knowledge of the future, I only see the very next step. I find that I can have much, much greater peace in my circumstances. The last verse says, Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing." When hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free. The rich fool thought what he needed to be set free from care was more money and more goods and more material wealth and hanging on to it for as long as he could. God says, now, what you need to feel secure and to be truly happy is me. That's what you need. You need to see me. You need to trust me. You need to rely on me, regardless of what your bank account looks like, regardless of what's going on in, you know, Wall on Wall Street or whatever it might be. But let's come to the fourth point is the last part of all this is the issue of um, what we're treasuring in this world. And and ultimately, I think this the theme in this passage is all around the issue of where our treasure is and how where our treasure is is going to influence our worry and our anxiety. And in the last verses, 32 through 34, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, For no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that's the ultimate point of the passage. It starts out with, be careful of being greedy. Be careful of thinking that possessions are where your treasure is. When really, your treasure is with God who is in heaven. And so he encourages us to be careful of trying to control the future in light of wanting to somehow control what we have in this world. And he says, the way the world works apart from God is that they can only believe that the treasure there is to have is in this world. They have no treasure beyond this world. And therefore it does matter to them, and very naturally, it matters what I have in this world because this is all there is. And somehow, we can be like the rich fool and think, well, if I have a lot, then that must mean God loves me and favors me. Or, or if I have a lot, that must mean, you know, I'm secure. When really, that's not true. It can be gone in an instant, or we can be gone in an instant. And so the Lord is saying, remember that, Even if you are a poor Christian, you are rich because you have God and you have all the promises of God. And what has God promised you? Everything. The Bible says that in Romans 4, that the world was given to Abraham. And the Bible says that one day we will enjoy heaven on earth and that we will reign with Christ, which means we will reign over everything he reigns over. And it even says in 1 Corinthians that everything belongs to Christ. We belong to Christ and therefore everything belongs to us. That's the reality of the situation is that we already have it all. So why want, something you already have, in a sense. The key is just to wait for God to bring it all about and and not think we have to make it happen ourselves. Trust God for the happiness that he promises, promises us in the kingdom. So the bottom line is our treasure is wherever our hope for help and happiness lies. If my hope for being Helped and happy is in my bank account, that's my treasure. If it's in my job, that's my treasure. If it's in my spouse, that's my treasure. Whatever it's in, that is my treasure. If my hope for help and happiness is in God, then he's my treasure. And we have to fight the temptation to want to put that hope on other things and and to put that hope on things in this world. It's interesting... In the story of the prodigal son, you've got the prodigal son who says, I want my inheritance now. I want all of it. And I want to enjoy it now. God says we have an inheritance laid up in heaven and we need to wait. You've got the uh, legalistic older brother who complains that the father never gave him um, a, a calf to sacrifice or to uh, cook and enjoy with his friends. So he's basically complaining that he didn't get everything he wanted from the father, even though uh, the prodigal son supposedly did. But in either case, you've got a situation where both of them, whether you are the disobedient prodigal son or the, quote, obedient uh, older son, both of them are are saying their treasure is in this world. And God is saying we have to fight against thinking that that's really... The case because God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 1, "Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great." That is translated differently in some um, translations. In the NIV and in other translations, it's translated this way: "Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your very great reward." And I think that's what the Bible says that. <clears throat> Ultimately, our reward, our treasure, is not anything God gives it's God himself. God himself is our treasure and our reward and that's why, as I've told you the story about the puritan and evidently it is a true story based on persecution that many of the Puritans only had meager bread and water because of the persecution that they were going through and there's the account of the Puritan who looked at the the meager, dry piece of bread and the glass of water and said, all this and Jesus too? Wow, that's great. Which means he understood that to have Jesus is to have everything my heart could ever need or desire and have everything that he promises. And so it comes down to the importance of fighting worry. And so we all are tempted to worry. But how do you fight it? You fight it by pondering deeply, considering uh, the birds and the lilies. Ponder deeply and continually the truth and promises of God who sent his son to die for you. If he will do that, he will do anything else that you need. Pray honestly and openly about your concerns and your desires and wrap them up in the your will not mine, be done package. So I tell God exactly what I want and what I need and then I submit to his will. I don't demand my will. And then I practice what God tells me to do. If he tells me to work, I work. If he tells me to give to meet the needs of others, I do that. I don't let my anxiety keep me from doing those things. I give my life to doing the will of God and I trust him to meet my needs like he's promised. Well, if you would, please bow your head and let's pray and wrap this up. <clears throat> Let me just ask some questions as we wrap this up for all of us to answer, myself included. Do you want more than God has given or promised? Do you want to be independent of God or not be in any need? Do you want to provide for yourself without any help from God and others? Do you want your treasure in this world? And maybe getting right down to the, the bottom is the question, what are you afraid of not getting or not keeping? What are you afraid of not getting or not keeping? And how do you need to trust the promises of God in it all? And more basically, have you trust his promise to forgive you and give you eternal life if you give your life to Jesus? Jesus. Father, we just pray and ask that you'd help us as we consider these questions, as we consider your word, help us to believe that you truly love us and want us to be happy, and yet help us to see that our own holiness, our own fight against worry is crucial to us, finding our joy in you in greater, deeper ways, and it's crucial to us being free to, to give and to serve and love other people and not be hindered by our own selfishness or our own fears and anxieties. And so we pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts and help us as we battle worry and anxiety, and that we and as we seek to glorify you more and more with our trust in you in every season and in every circumstance. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.